Find Hebrews 11. You're going to look at verses 4 through 7 with us today. Uh, I'm going to take three guys and study them independently. Several years ago, I was at a conference and reminded about a, a real truth that by the time most, and some would say all, organizations, a um, lot of nonprofits, many even ministries, by the time they get to the third and the fourth generation of leadership, they have shifted from the original mission, vision, and values to which the organization was founded. So by the time most companies get to the third generation of leadership, they look different than they did when they started. This is called mission drift. Uh, it's an actual thing out there. It's called a, a gradual loss from the original conviction and founding purposes. To give you an example of this, we go back to, the, to our oldest uh, institution in America. Anybody know what it is? Harvard University. Somebody laughed. Let me read to you the mission statement of Harvard University. Founded in 1636. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is the normal life. Therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning, we seek that the seeing the Lord, we, that seeing the Lord only gives wisdom. Let everyone every student seriously set himself in prayer in secret to seek him. The original mission vision of Harvard University. Today, their mission statement says, as America's oldest and most venerable institution of higher learning, Harvard's mission is to advance new ideas and to promote enduring knowledge. There's a vast difference between the two. At its foundation, when it began, Harvard was intent on making disciples. When you read their mission statement, in fact, much of this statement is still inscribed on a stone tablet on a wall at the gate of Harvard University. In fact, if we go to Boston this fall for missions work, we will go by Harvard and we will see this where this is still listed in part of their form and function as their mission, vision, and value. And yet, not to speak ill of an institution, you and I would know well today that it's as liberal as it can be. That it is not intent today on producing disciples. Mission drift happens. It happens in churches, it happens in ministries, it happens in our own individual lives where our purpose gets hijacked by other concerns. Matter of fact, if you just pause a little bit and do a quick inventory in your life, you may evaluate that your mission and vision for maybe when you first started walking with the Lord or when you determined that you're going to be all in, when you determined that I'm going to be a fully devoted, passionate follower of Jesus Christ, you set out a mission and vision. 
If you go down into my office, you'll find a document of my personal mission statement. And while it has shifted through the years and has changed a little bit as my roles have changed from raising little kids to now helping to raise adult kids, because you realize we're always parenting, right? No matter how old they are. And now it's to the next generation. My roles in ministry have changed. But at the bottom of my mission statement, I've, I found this one line years and years ago, and it's not changed. It simply says, I will finish well if I keep a towel on my arm and water in my basin. Essentially, if I can maintain that of a servant-hearted attitude and a servant's heart, I will finish well. Today, when we dive into this chapter of Hebrews 11, we're going to find some examples, just three today, who stayed the course. As a matter of fact, that's your big idea today. If you want to write something down at the top of your handout, you can write it down a couple ways. Stay the course. Do not drift. Hold fast. Whatever it is that resonates with you, that's what I want you to write down. Matter of fact, take your Bibles and go back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. It's interesting, we're dropping in at chapter 11, but you really need to go back and understand the first 10 chapters. In Hebrews 6, verses 11 through 12, he sets us up for what we're getting ready to study. He says, now that we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but you'll be imitators of those who inherited the promise through faith and perseverance. Can I just say this real plainly to you today? Part of our goal is that you and I won't become lazy in the faith. Have you ever found yourself lazy in the faith? If you've been walking with the Lord more than 24 hours, you've probably been lazy in the faith. Paul even, I think he wrestled with this at times. You remember his famous verses out of Romans 7? The things I want to do. Yeah, I don't do those. And the things I don't want to do. Ugh. Can't you just hear his angst in the text? Those are the things that I, I do. Isn't that where we live sometimes? And Satan's so wise to beat us up and to push us down and to convince us that you'll always be lazy, you'll never be able to persevere, you'll never be like those of old, you'll never be like the people maybe that you aspire to be around you. And yet in Hebrews chapter 6, he says this to you and I today, as clear as he wrote it then, he says today, don't get lazy. Put your hands to the plow. Don't look back. Don't get lazy in this. And one of the things that will help us to not get lazy in our journey of faith is the examples of people who have gone ahead of us and persevered. I'm always grateful for an example to follow. Are you not? So that's why you get Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at three cats today. Three of these guys. We're going to look at Abel, we're going to look at Enoch, and we're going to look at Noah. Noah's the most famous. Abel's pretty famous. Enoch, we don't know a whole lot about, but let's dive into these guys and see what we can learn about having a commended faith today. Now, the word commended, the reason I use that word, it simply means that uh, that, that which is presented as suitable and approved for acceptance. How many of you want commended faith? You know what that is? That's Paul. 
I want to one day hear my father say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, right? I want to finish the race well. So in Abel, if you're taking any notes, if you've got your hand out, Abel, we simply learn how to have a commended faith, an approved faith in the way that we approach God. It says in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. Did you notice in one simple verse, faith is mentioned three times. When you see a word repeated over and over and over in Scripture, you want to pay attention to it. So if you're like me, you'll go back in your Bible and you highlight your circle. You'll pay attention to that word of faith. Now, how many of you know the story of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve, second generation. These two boys were born after Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because of the sin that they had committed. Cain and Abel grow up. We don't know anything about their childhood. All we know, Adam and Eve are removed from the garden in chapter 3. We get to chapter 4 of Genesis and we find Abel and Cain and other children, but Cain and Abel being the most famous children of Adam and Eve. And we learn in Genesis 4 through 5, Abel is a shepherd. He tends sheep. Cain is a farmer. He works the land. And the first mention that we get of Cain and Abel is these two boys coming together. They're men at this point, and they are coming to worship God by bringing a sacrifice. That's what we know. Genesis 4 and 5 says this, Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Don't you love the way scripture reads sometimes? Cain is furious and he looks it. <laughs> have you ever walked in, your, in a room and you've seen your spouse or a friend or a child and you can tell something's not right? That's normally when I turn around and try to walk out. But normally, if we're at all engaged, we ask what question? Are you okay? That's the question we would ask of Cain. His sacrifice has just been rejected, and now he's sitting here mad, and he's wanting to make sure that his face is telling everything about what's going on in his heart and his mind. That's what we find in Genesis 4 and 5. Now, Abel brings this sacrifice of worship to the Lord, it's a firstborn of his flock. It's a blood sacrifice. It's a sacrificial offering. Cain brings an offering of fruit or of, of vegetation that the ground has produced. Now here's what we know when you study Genesis chapter 4. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain's was not. Has anyone ever read that passage and went, what gives? Why did Abel get the big approval and Cain got the big, nope, not happening? Why did this happen? Well, I think we can plainly point to the fact that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it involved a blood 
sacrifice. It involved the shedding of blood. Cain's did not. Abel is looking forward. Abel is pointing towards what we would know as the sacrifice of Christ. Matter of fact, if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, flip back just a chapter or two and look at Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says this, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And here's what you need to circle. Underline this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So two brothers approach the same God with two different sacrifices. Abel approaches the Lord with a blood sacrifice that points to the sacrifice that Christ would ultimately make on the cross for you and I. Abel recognizes he cannot approach God in his own, mer in his own merits. Do you hear that today? Abel catches this. I cannot come before holy God on my own work and my own efforts. I wonder who he learned that from. When you go back and look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you find Adam and Eve who makes this tragic decision to try to be like God and to have a relation with God based on their own works and their own efforts. But because Abel has faith, in God, because Abel has faith in a future sacrifice, it's counted to him as righteousness before God. The shedding of blood is laid where it covers him. Cain approaches with this bloodless sacrifice, this bloodless offering. Cain never stops to consider who he is and who God is. Can I pause here and preach for just a second? You know how easy it is for us to come into a room like this and we say we're going to stand and worship and that's really singing. Or how easy it is to get before the Lord maybe in our quiet time is our, our time of personal worship or declare ourselves worshipers of God. And yet we try to walk into his presence without any consideration of who am I. Paul observed himself as the chiefest of sinners, the greatest of sinners. When's the last time you and I have ever been washed over, overcome with the reality of what our sin must look like before holy and righteous God? Oftentimes we excuse it. Oftentimes we just push it aside. Oftentimes we think God's going to give us a pass on this. But we learn from Cain. Cain walks in to make this sacrifice, this point of worship, and he never stops and goes, who am I? But the bigger question is, who is God? It's the Isaiah 6 passage, one of my favorites. And I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Cain never seems to get to this point. Kent Hughes, an author, pastor, and theologian, says this, Cain's offering was a monument to pride and self-righteousness because Cain is bringing with him not something that foreshadows the sacrifice of Christ, but something that represents his own toil and labor. And it's not even the best of that. Did you hear that? How often do we come before the Lord not even giving him our best but really all we're going to try to offer him is what we've produced, our works of righteousness, our kind deeds, our supposed selfless acts. And scripture says all of our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags.
compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. So Cain approaches God by works and Abel approaches God by faith. And just before you think, you know, God just kind of washed his hands of it. When you read the text, go back to Genesis 4, you'll see that God lovingly and generously and tenderly comes to Cain and tries to draw him back. But nothing penetrates his heart. He has turned his heart, his mind against the Lord. And we know what happens, right? Cain murders his brother Abel. Why? Why did Cain set out to murder Abel? I simply believe it's because he was trying to silence his faith. He was trying to silence the righteousness that was set before him. He was trying to put an end to what Abel believed and promote what Cain believed. Cain became offended that his works counted for nothing and that he couldn't approach God any way he wanted. Can I say that again? Cain's offense is that his works wouldn't be good enough to get him before God and that he couldn't come to the Lord any way that he wanted to. Hard stuff today, isn't it? Are you Cain or are you Abel? Are you Cain or are you Abel? We live in a world that teaches that truth is relative. Whatever's true to you is fine. If that's what you believe, that's fine. You can make up your own truth. But you and I as Christ followers, we know, we believe, we are founded on the reality that the truth does not change. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Do you agree with that this morning? Man, we're going to have to teach you all. That's another good place to say amen right there. Truth does not change. The Bible does not change. Agree? The gospel does not change and God himself cannot change. And here's here's the reality. The gospel will always be offensive to this world. Let me, let me put it this way. If you and I are supposedly living a gospel that isn't offensive to this world, it's most likely not the gospel of this book. Now, I've been taught through the years, let the gospel be offensive. We don't have to be. That's a good word right there. There's no reason for you and I to be offensive. But let the gospel stand true and the world will say, you, don't, you can't say that there's only way, one way to heaven. And we can say, yes, there is. The world will say, you can earn your way to God. And we can say, no, we can't. And what I encourage you today is hold fast. Hold fast. And be commended as Abel was commended that the way we approach God matters. Make sense today? Ready for number two? I like this guy. I like Enoch a lot. Enoch, what we find the way his faith was commended is he walked with the Lord. He walks with God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Such great verses. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death. He was not found because the Lord took him away. I think that's such a cool verse. They were looking for him. He's gone. 
Nowhere to be found. It says before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. And since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Who is this guy Enoch? Well, we don't know much about him. Matter of fact, He's one of those great mysteries of the Old Testament. The only thing you really find of him is back in Genesis chapter 5, and you'll see verse 21 through 24 talk about Enoch. It's the only place in the Old Testament that mentions him. And in this particular context, he's listed as one of the, this long list of the descendants of Noah. And Moses is, is very particular the way he's writing here in Genesis. He gives this long list of these guys and he lists them everyone the exact same way. He gives their name. He tells how many years they lived. Then he tells how many children they fathered. Then he tells how many more years they lived after he fathered those children. And then it says, and then they died. This is, this is the obituary. This is who it is. This is how old he was when he had kids. This is how many kids he had. This is how long he survived or lived, whichever way you want to translate that, after he had kids, and then he died. And that's same and consistent until you get to verse 21 and you bump into Enoch. And it says in verses 23, 24 of Genesis 5, so Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was not there because God took him. How fun is that? Can you imagine walking with the Lord and the Lord going, hey, you want to come up for lunch today? And he goes, sure, I'll come for lunch. Whoosh, gone. <laughs> I would love that. It's such an amazing thing, isn't it? All it says Enoch walked with the Lord and then he was no more. How about that for a, a statement on your tombstone? How about that for the line to lead your obituary? Randy walked with the Lord and then he was no more. Amazing. Amazing. And here's what I find so interesting. We tend to think, is, is it really 10 minutes to 11? I'm in trouble. Well, you'll be all right. Um, we tend to think that the, the amazing thing about Enoch is that he just was raptured. That he was just taken up. That he walked with the Lord. Then he was gone. Here's what I find to be the amazing thing about Enoch. Is when you get into uh, Hebrews 11. Nope. Yep. When you get into Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says, For before he was taken away, he was approved or he was commended as one who pleased God. Now there's a testimony. Well, I think it'd be cool for it to be said of me that there was Todd. And then he wasn't because he walked with God. I think that's, that would be cool. But what I really want 
is for it to be said of me and to be said of you that before I ever went into God's presence, my walk was already approved. I was already faithful. It was already on display as to who mattered in my life, that my life was marked by a deep and an intimate and a communion and a fellowship with God that just couldn't be broken. And it was such a unique relationship. Understand that. Enoch was in such a unique walk and communion with God. It was so intimate and so real that God simply said, come on home. In my lifetime, I only know what I believe, and maybe it wasn't this way, but I believe it happened to one person in my life. But it ended in a tragedy. We had a dear friend in college named David DeMoss. In fact, if you go down to Liberty University, you'll see one of the biggest buildings on the campus called the DeMoss Hall. DeMoss Hall was uh, built by the Arthur S. DeMoss Foundation, their family. Art DeMoss had six kids. Mark DeMoss, some of you may know of him. He's a, a very famous uh, public relations guy. Some of you will know of Lansing Lee DeMoss, who followed... Elizabeth Elliot. They had other kids. One of their kids was David. He was my age. Get this. This was not in my notes to tell, but I think maybe it'll help us. When Art DeMoss died, each one of his children inherited $21 million. <laughs> That's a lot of money. When I was in college... My brother and I shared an old black pickup truck. And the good news was, was we knew that when we needed a iced tea, that we could scavenge through that truck and find enough change, it cost 69 cents at the time, to go to Hardee's and get an unlimited sweet tea. And then he would get a cup and I would drink, or he would get a cup and drink it and then give it to me and I'd go in and get a cup and drink it. Maybe not be legal, but that's what we did. But we, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. And we drove this old beat up black truck that we, we prayed people's chains would fall out when they were driving with us so we could get sweet teas. And we become friends with David DeMoss. Didn't realize who he was until months into our friendship. And one of the reasons why we became friends with David is because we had a truck and he didn't. And David would show up and go, hey, can I borrow your, 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 your vehicle? And by the way, do you have any gas in it? And that dude would drive our truck all the time. We would provide the gas. He would bring it back and it'd be emptier than it was when he took it. And then I find out who he is. And I go, dude, you're sitting on $21 million. But here's the thing about David DeMoss. This man walked with the Lord in a way that I had never seen displayed in my life before. Humble, content, in communion, in fellowship. And the world's possessions never captured his attention. Fortune and fame were never part of the badge that he wore. And David, 21 years old, was right driving his dad's sports car in June and went to pass someone, hit him head on, threw him 70 feet out of the car. He died immediately. And I believe in my life, David DeMoss was a modern-day Enoch who walked with the Lord 
and then he was not. Why do I tell you that story? Because Enoch's are not for days of past. Enoch's are for today. We need Enoch's today that have their faith set on the right object who are pointed to looking at God and said, whoever withdraw near to God must believe that he exists. So you've got to have the right object of faith. And you've got to believe that a faith in Christ and Christ alone is rewarded by the only one who can reward us. There's nothing this world has to offer you and I. Do you agree with that today? So here's my question. Is that the kind of faith you have today? Another example that I think is helpful, but we go back a couple centuries to a man named Polycarp. In 156 AD, Polycarp was arrested. He's a humble, powerful, bold minister of the gospel. He's arrested and he's threatened to be burned alive if he did not um, denounce his faith in Christ and proclaim his loyalty to Caesar. And Polycarp is recorded as saying the following, For 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while it is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire, the coming judgment, and the eternal punishment, which reserved for the ungodly. And Polycarp looks to his accusers and says, Why do you delay? Come and do what you wish. And they set this man on fire and burned him at the stake. And Polycarp clings to Christ by faith that God had promised him an eternity in heaven. Do you have that kind of faith today? Do your hearts beat for the gospel? Are you hungry to stand up for the Lord and let it be said of you, he walked with God and then he was no more? Micah puts it this way. Mankind has told each of us is what is good and what it is the Lord requires for you to act justly, to love faithfully, and to walk humbly with your God. And lastly, let me give you Noah. We have faith that is commended by the way we approach God, faith that is commended by the way we walk with God, and now Noah is faith and commended to the way we obey God. The author of Hebrews is being pretty chronological here. He's going Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 5, now Noah is Genesis chapter 6 as he gives us this list of these faithful servants in Hebrews 11. Genesis 6, if you go back and read it, you will find that the Lord had looked upon the earth. He had seen the wickedness of man. He saw how great it was on the earth. And here's an interesting verse. It says, the Lord recognized that the intention of every man's heart was evil. Think about that. The intention, the depths, the foundation, the purpose of every person's heart was evil. And yet then it says, and yet Noah founds, finds favor in God's eyes. Imagine the whole world is wicked. The whole world has gone off the rails. Sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? The whole world has lost their ever-living mind they only do what is wicked, and then here you are living in the midst of it, and the Lord goes, oh, look at you. You're a modern-day Noah that finds favor in God's eyes. 
And in the context of, of Genesis 5 or 6, 7, and 8 and 9, the Lord comes to Noah and he goes, hey, Noah, I got an idea. We know this story, don't we? Let's build a boat. What's a boat? Don't worry about it. Well, why do I need a boat? Yeah, don't worry about that either. Well, when do I need a boat? Well, you're going to need a boat when there's a flood. What's well, a flood? Don't worry about that. <laughs> How big is this flood going to be? It's going to be pretty big. Can you imagine the Lord coming to you today and going, hey, let's go to your neighborhood, Carl, and build a boat. You're on a high hill. Why would you need a If the flood waters get to your house, we're in trouble. What I love about it isn't that the Lord just found favor in him, isn't just that the Lord asked him to build an ark. What I love about it is, the, is that Noah does what God commands. He doesn't, he doesn't have to know all the details. How many of you are detail people in here? Brian, raise your hand. <laughs> yeah, we're detail people, aren't we? I need to know the who, the what, the when, the where, the how, the why, well, what all are we doing? But all Noah knows is that God said, build the ark, and Scripture says that he did it. Decades before a flood shows up. Chapter 8, as you read chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Genesis, you'll find chapter 8, the flood water starts to subside. Then in chapter 9, God establishes this covenant with Noah. But when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, you got to read this. It says, by faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. And by faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Write this down somewhere. Noah obeyed God when it didn't seem necessary. I love that. He obeyed God when it didn't seem necessary. Build an ark. We don't need an ark. Well, build an ark because there's going to be a flood. We've never seen a flood. Well, flood's going to happen because of the great rain. We don't know what rain is. And all Noah knows is what the Lord said, and he went, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll talk more about that response of here am I next week when we talk about Abraham. But Noah obeys the Lord when it doesn't seem necessary. You'll find in chapter 11, Verse 1, what we studied last week, that faith is a conviction of things not seen. Is that right? And Noah had never seen a flood. He had never seen water. He had no need of an ark. And yet he believed that God said do it, so he did it. And his neighbors are going, man, the 600-year-old dude has lost his mind. But I'll tell you, you can write this one down as well. Obedience, the obedience of faith seldom makes sense to a person who lives for self. You will never live by faith if you choose to live for self. And we are called, you hear me this morning, we are called to take God at His word even when we can't find the reason to obey it. That'll preach.
that'll preach. You and I are called to believe this book even when it doesn't make sense. Noah obeyed God. It says in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. There's another obituary I would like to have. Todd was a righteous man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. Todd walked with God. And most days of my life, most moments of my days, I don't feel like that. Here's what's important. Abel, Enoch, Noah, all declared righteous, weren't they? Abel, Enoch, and Noah all declared to have great faith. Abel, Enoch, and Noah all obeyed God. But here's what I want you to understand today, that their obedience was not what declared them righteous. The obedience of Abel, Enoch, and Noah is not what declared them righteous. Their faith is what declared them righteous. Their faith is what made them right with God. And it was because of their faith that they lived in obedience. I fear that sometimes we get the cart before the horse, that we think if we practice obedience, it will increase our faith. But I'm going to tell you the opposite according to Scripture. When you increase your faith, you will increase your obedience. When you believe right, you will live right. It is by faith that we obey God. It's not by obedience of God that we have faith. Matthew says this, Jesus speaks and says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the, ne until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. Now this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Folks, I'm not going to stand here today. The Word of God is not going to be presented to you today in such of a way that all we want you to do is be obedient. Read your Bible every day. Pray a little bit every day. Be kind to the poor every day. Be generous every day. All those things are important. And should we be obedient? Of course we should. But you can't get obedience ahead of faith. What is the object of your faith today? The object of your faith is not approval through my good works and my good acts. The object of my faith is the sacrifice of Christ alone who did for me what I cannot do for myself. It's not my good works as Cain would be. It's not my, my approach as Cain would have had it. It's Abel's faith in looking at the blood sacrifice that only God could provide. It's walking with the Lord when it seemed like nobody else was. And it's obeying what God commands you to do, even when it doesn't make sense. So here's how you wrap this thing up today. Two really simple thoughts. 
The title of our series is Going Forward by Faith. It's simply this. Cling to Christ through faith alone. Not through your obedience, not through your good works, not through your righteous thoughts. Cling to Christ alone through faith. Now here's the reality of clinging to Christ. It means drawing near to Him. It means being focused on Him. It means having no other before Him. It being sold out to Him. It means being all into Him. But I don't cling to Him. He holds to me. Scripture says when I draw close to Him, He'll draw close to me. But my salvation is not done by my holding on to the righteousness of God. My salvation is secured by the sacrifice of God holding on to me. But I want to cling to Christ. I want to be focused on Christ. I want to be committed to Christ. I want to draw near to Christ in such a way that my faith is first. Do you get that? Number two, if you want to move forward by faith today, by the examples of Abraham, Enoch, and Noah, don't drift. Don't drift. Stay anchored to this harbor of faith. I don't know how old the song is. In recent years, it has come out. It's a, what we would call a modern day hymn entitled, He Will Hold Me Fast. Anybody know this song? When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, yet he holds me fast. Those he saves are his delight. And Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He holds me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. And he promises, his promises shall last. Brought by him at such a cost. He holds me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised to him in endless life, he will hold me fast. Until our faith is turned to sight, when he comes at last, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Wow. <laughs> Is that where you are today? Confident faith. Commended faith. Forward in faith. Not because of what you've done. 
because of what he's done. Do you know him? Do you know him as Savior? Do you know him as Lord? And do you know him as the one that does not change? I pray today you'll know him. Where you are, you accept him as your Savior. Where you are, you renew your faith. Maybe you'll take the next few minutes and find a place at this altar, just kneeling before the Lord and going, hold me fast. Hold me fast. Renew my faith. Secure my eternity. Strengthen my walk. Spirit of God, you know what we need in this room. You know who is here and you know where we are. You know those that are drawing close and those that are far away. Father, you know the heart and the intent of every one of us in this room. You know that we're here because we desire to know you, to be changed by you, to be obedient to you, to be marked by faith in you. And Father, I believe you know that some are in this room today out of a rote, shallow experience of hoping because they showed up, they earned points. Lord, would you convict our hearts and change our minds and redirect our paths? Would you challenge us to be people who love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength? And would you, Father, would you be the focus of our faith? Would you be the object to which we are so focused on that we can't help but be obedient, that we can't help but to approach you the right way, and that we just want to walk with you every day of our life in such a way that there's nothing that hinders our communication and our fellowship with you. Oh God, today, would you unleash us? Would you unshackle us? Would you allow this church to be moved today by faith, approved by you? In Jesus' name, amen.